Hello everyone, welcome back to episode 2 of Driving to Pretoria with me, your host, Nick Rabinovitz. The last time I drove to Pretoria was when I was working for Theatre for Africa back in 2000 and I had to drive to Pretoria from, I don't know, somewhere in Zambia, North Luangwa, South Luangwa. One of the Luangwas. <laughs> anyway, my guest on episode 2 well, he's actually fresh from a recent midlife crisis, but he's doing surprisingly well. He is renowned slash revered South African actor, comedian, slash dancer, slash boxer, and former manager of the Broncos Spread Caravan Park and Rooms, the currently very buff-looking Robert Janser van Vieren. You may know him better as Ikareskai or Twaki or Rabi Rab 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 Rab. And Robbie Rob Rob discusses some of his worst onstage moments with me, including uh, a masterclass, a short masterclass on how to assault hecklers without being arrested in foreign countries, which I think has a limited target audience, but you might disagree. I present to you Robert Janse van Vieren, a.k.a. Twaki, a.k.a. My guest today is the lovely, uh, and let us say, uh, incredibly buff, currently buff-looking Rob van Vieren. I'm going to put that on my Instagram bio. Currently buff looking. Tell us what you have been doing with your body, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> it's the way you looked at my body <laughs> when you asked that veins, question. Like bulging out of your arms. My, my veins are currently buff. Yeah. I've been working out a lot, Nicholas. We've seen on Instagram, we've seen you in the cage. Is it the cage? The cage is my uh, gym. I'm my yes. private gym person. Is it a cage in Fishhook? It's in Sun Valley. In Sun Valley. So yeah. what, were they keeping old alcoholic pensioners in the in cage, cage before it was transformed into a gym? They're still there. That's part of the training. You have to beat you lift off. Them. You lift them, throw them, beat them off. Wow. You go in with like a bottle of, like a, like a half jack of Obies in your... Leotard. How much dementia can you bench press? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Don't answer that. I'm not going to answer So that. there you are every third, uh, three days a week in the cage. Twice a week and then three days a week I'm with Lo Fenter in his little homemade boxing gym in oh, his lapa in his garden. And when you say a boxing gym at Low Fenter's house, I just want to be clear that it's not a uh, miniature animated gym where you guys just play corner and twaki doing boxing against each other. It's half half. Half of the training is that, is playing with the little dolls. Uh, other half of the training is us doing it in real life as full size human beings. Because you can't do the dolls thing if no. you haven't experienced it and you like to understand. You won't be able to get into character yeah. fully. Yeah. yeah. It's Kef, bro. He's got like three different boxing bags he's got a pull-up bar he's got weights he's got pads we've got boxing gloves we mud each other a little bit every now and again uh, do you have to get into like character because Kona and Twaki of course would have murdered each other yes do you feel like you need to embody that to hit your friend Rob I mean Lo no I also want to hit Lo Fenton in real life <laughs> I think I detest him as much as Twaki detests Kona <laughs> yes Yes. It's a love-hate thing. It is. Huh? It is like that with a lot of bands. And now, a word from our sponsors. Have you maybe put on a few unwanted grams during the pandemic? Well, maybe you should try boxing. boxing. 
Visit Low Fenter's Boma of Pain in Glencairn where you too could beat up either Rob van Puren or an old-aged pensioner. No fees included, although we are doing an exchange. So if you can bring, like, I don't know, if you could swap, like, a bag of compost, maybe, like, dog poo that you've composted recently, or even, like, if you made nitrogen from your own weed during the drought in 2018 and you want to exchange that because it killed your grass, you can. Decency supply. Because you guys did actually have... We played... We did have a band. I once went to a gig... It was like in Woodstock or somewhere. Yeah. In a rock garden and you were on bass. Yes. Dude. That gig, What was that place called? Uh, District 6 Cafe. Yes. So do you remember me abseiling yes. down the side of the building? Yes. Brian, that was insane. So, because next to the building there was this like two double story, like sheer, like um, yeah. brick face wall next to where yes. the outside audience was and the stage was. And... We did a whole show called The Style of Love with our band, The Style of Love. Yes. And we partnered with Freshly Ground, real estate agents, Fokov Polisikar, and someone else. And it, it, we were doing the, just this straight comedy show, like Monday to Friday. And then on the Saturdays, we were doing The Style of Love music show. And we had a song called Icarus Guy about Twaki, who is like Icarus, who float too far close to the sun and bent his wings into wax and died, crashed to earth. Uh, and I had a suit, Lowe's wife Janine made me an Icarus Guy suit with like a, like a golden Icarus Guy logo and a golden Icarus Guy cloak. And then I got my friend Hein, who was my climbing partner, to abseil me down the building. And I, at a certain point in that first song of Icarus Guy, I appeared on the roof of the building and then started abseiling down, but walking. With your guitar or not? I had just the, oh, just the mic. Just the mic. And I was singing, Icarus Guy, <laughs> while walking down the side of the building, like facing oh the God. ground. It was insane. And then going on stage and picking up my guitar and Do you know, Icarus Guy. I still think one of my favorite um, T-Mats moments, the most amazing show, was in a crowded armchair theater in observatory. And... There was just not a space. There was not a piece of carpet you could see. We were all sitting cross-legged. The lights went out and the seance began with the words, Hello, dead guys. (laughs) And you guys came out with trays of candles through the audience. We also did a chant, Bronco Spread Caravan Park. Bronco Spread Caravan Park. Broncos Breed Caravan Park, Broncos Breed Caravan Park and Rooms, Broncos <laughs> and Rooms, Baloney, Slap Chips. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and then we did a seance with dead people and we spoke to Oprah. Not because she was dead. Yes. Just because she was everywhere. Yes. And um, as with bands, uh, it starts off great and then at some point, you want to hit each other. I, I was uh, recalling this morning being uh, sharing the stage with Freshly Ground in Amsterdam yeah. in this amazing uh, theatre, the Koningsrijk or something like this, thousand seater. Yeah. I was emceeing. They played this great set, uh, like a thousand people. And I went walking with my housemate who was in the band at the time. And I, afterwards, we walked around um, the dikes. Who I saw not so long ago. Yeah, and I said, that's great.
great. How did, how did it go? I was, he said, it was, well, it was horrible. We haven't spoken, any, none of us have spoken to each other for the last three days uh, since we left Cape Town. Yeah, Lola had a particularly bad blowout in, at the Hilton Festival uh, one year. We'd been touring a lot. We'd, we'd done a lot of touring that year. And we'd just done Durban, which was such, always such a fuck up. It's so unforgiving. The audience is so fickle. We would get lost every night on the way to the theater as well. And we were just fucking over each other. And then we had to go to do, do the Hilton Festival. And uh, always picking someone out of the audience to do something ridiculous and embarrassing. And I was always the guy who would pick the person. And I think... I was starting to get resentful about that. And I decided one night, one night, I'm picking the guy. It's this guy. And he immediately was like, no guy, it's not that guy. And I'm like, this is the guy. He was like, no, that is not the guy. We need to pick another guy. And I like put my foot down and he was like, okay, <laughs> that's the guy. And the, but the beauty of that uh, interaction between those two characters was the contempt. You could channel the contempt that they were supposed to have for each other. You could mix it in with your actual. With Rob Van Fearon's actual. Yeah, but then what happens was we bring the guy upstage. It turns out Lowe was 100% correct guy. that was not the right guy, which is why Lowe always picked the guys because he was better at it than me. Yes. And what then, is that sense, that sixth sense of... Because it's not you, you, you're not a stand-up, which you weren't then. Uh, and when you, you have to pick, you've got to pick the right. Yeah, I think you get better. You Who's can get better at it, but he just had like a real, really good intu- What's intuition. What's a really bad person you've picked? That guy was the guy. As a stand-up. I was a stand-up. Because now you're talking to him as Rob. Um, there was one guy at um, the Cape Town Comedy Club who got very angry with me and Bruno had to kind of get between us. Bruno, the big Congolese yeah, sponsor. Yeah. Um, and it was because at the set that I was doing at the time, I always had a puss. I don't know if I can say that on this podcast. You can. But there was that guy. Yeah. Just, is this a podcast? Is that what we do? I don't know. Um, I think it's for Clubhouse. Uh, and then there was a guy who I'd call Apartheid. Yeah, generally we still older, do that from time. Yeah, from time to time, older white guy. Yeah, and um, the apartheid guy took offence. Of course, like he how? Because he was. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I pressed some sort of button there. Yeah, yeah. He's like, "How dare you assume that about me just because I'm old white?" He was a, clo- a, clo- a plain clothes policeman at the Brixton Murder and Robbery Squad. Murder and Robbery Unit. And he actually shot and killed his wife after an argument once. Exactly. And then he nearly shot and killed me at the Cape Town Comedy Club. He would have, had it not been for Bruno, the ex-child soldier. Uh, and speaking of Bruno, it, it, I was reading recently about Borat and all of his near-death experiences, most recently in the US. Did you see that thing with him, uh, the country and Western singer at the Trump rally, Trump like uh, festival? No. He does this thing, gets up. He, the first song was uh, the Wuhan flu. And it was like, everybody sing along with me. Kill Obama with the Wuhan flu. And they're like all singing around. And then eventually people started to realize, no, wait, this is, this is too far. And the guy stormed the stage with a gun. Oh my and God. They'd, they'd, hired a, they'd hired an ambulance because they thought an ambulance would fit in his production team. And they kept it running. They literally, it was running outside. 
motor was running and he had to, he but he was so committed that he just kept going until the guy literally arrived with a gun at the stage and then he had to run and then by that stage the mob was descending and he managed to get in and they were like closing the doors he jumped in and they're closing the and he had to like barricade the door it's it's really intense that impulse for for, for those people who are doing that kind of um character in real life kind of stuff leon just did that did for years this impulse to keep pushing to like what the end yeah. goal is to actually get someone to lose their shit completely that is the whole point of what you're trying to do otherwise it's it's kind of middle of the road you're really trying to and i find it having done some of that prank stuff i find it so weird it's really against my yeah my character to keep yeah because your survival instinct is also telling you get out of there get, get the out of here out of this here. guy's about to blow they're all about to blow I, I was once uh, found myself in a small town like I want to say Petersburg Polokwane when it was maybe well it still is both depending on who you are mm-hmm. and uh, it was a golf day and it was one of those golf days I think where they had like a few pro golfers who were basically like not like just of any else level but you know on the south african the sunshine circuit yes which means that most of them have to sleep in their car <laughs> and then a few and bus- the sunshine and wakes them up that's why it's called <laughs> and they had like a few they always had a few local businessmen that would then play golf with them so there's a guy in green khaki shorts khaki shirt running you know this guy you're always gravitating towards the, the one front center middle uh and so i'm like and what do you do and he goes, my farmer, I've got a game farm or something like this. Uh, cool. And then I proceeded to do some of those, you know, those like your Afrikaans audience and you're like, oh, what am I like Afrikaans big hitters? Okay. Um, the story with the rhinoceros that I stole from my godfather many years ago. Um, and that's for the first time in my career that gag just just bombed and it the, died. the room was just like like this and I've seen like Schuster pranking someone else or someone else pranking get the whole audience not to laugh and then the comedian that goes that feeling I was like, what is going on? And then at the end of the gig, someone came up to me and goes, Man, you're fucking brave, eh? Dio, can you die? Jan, of course, whatever the fuck his name was. He's currently out on bail because he was farming rhinoceros on his farm for poaching. He's the MPA investigator for 42 million rand. Okay? And that guy, people have died, my friend. People have died. You are kidding me. No. What are the chances? So last week on the show, we had um, renowned uh, comedian KG Mukhadi, and uh, when asked the question, what are some of your worst gigs, he brought up a show he did in the Seychelles, I want to say, or was it Mauritius? It's the Seychelles. The Seychelles. For, now, KG was a bit sketchy with the details in terms of who the gig was for, but I... Having spoken to other people, no. It was some kind of sultan or sheikh or yeah. something like that. It's, yeah, some, some 
dude in on in some sort of royal six right. li- line somewhere in the Middle East. Right. He has an annual event. More than annual. More than annual. I think at one point it was... Whenever he's feeling lonely. It's like four he, times a year kind of thing. Oh and wow. literally that. It's like this event where... Friend, not only is the entertainment flown in, and the entertainment is on a really big scale, and they stay in a separate hotel, and it's all, largely South Africans. It was all yes. sourced via South Africa in a completely different resort on a completely different side of the island. And then there's his side of the island where he's staying with all of his friends, in inverted commas, because they've been flown in, models and yes. good-looking people and interesting people, to be at this party. Right. Um, and you, uh, so you were one of the models... Yes. Yes. No. I no. was unfortunate. What kind of entertainment were you booked? They phoned you up. They said, Rob, so did you know of the gig? Did you, you'd heard of it? I can't, I can't remember. I think well, we got filled in pretty quickly about there was this thing and we may have heard of it somewhere along the line. So we got booked as Corner and Twaki. But, oh. but uh, there was two things that we were going to do. One, we were get, there was a tennis match that we were going to umpire and sort of be a ball boy or something in because of the, the right. kind of sweatband aesthetic that we had going, I think. And then the other one is we were going to basically be in the background of another skit about the Oscars that Alan Committee was hosting as the MC of the Oscars. Uh, and then they had filmed video clips of this dude or friends of this dude, which were now the movies of the year that were up for. And Corne and Twaki, although, and myself, were the os- life-size Oscar statuettes behind Alan Committee in full-body golden leotards. When I say full-body, I mean like everything. Like, like statuettes as in... So we stood still in full-body golden leotards as the Oscar statuettes, obviously one like half the size of the other, but both of us with giant fake penises in our in our golden leotards of course and and that was the other gig just going to be in the background and what happened is on at the actual time that we were there the tennis match got pulled for some or other reason and all we did was be the golden statuettes for 15 minutes in the background and how long were you on the island like four days it was like almost a week we like snorkeled and it was just like a holiday that we got paid a, a lot of money for at that time to be the life-size golden Oscar gimps in the background. I feel like we could do a collection of those stories. stories. I wonder if I'm in danger of being like assassinated for even talking about this. Oh, because there was all the secrecy about you weren't allowed to... You, you weren't allowed to look at the guy. Yeah. You couldn't, like, you had to avert your eyes. Um, and you were there with Mark Banks. Mark Banks, Alan Committee, John Blissmus. Mark um, Banks claims. Okay, no, I feel like I'm incriminating a whole well, bunch no, well, of We want to have Mark Banks on, on this podcast because, well, I think we want to hear him talk about those things. Just, that's my favorite, one of my favorite worst gigs ever stories. But um, he claims, Mark claims that he was the only person ever to make the sheikh Laugh. Does he claim that? He claims that. He's made a lot of claims in his times. And Mark, Mark has, Banks. but I suspect he, he might be right. But it's not easy to make the guy. Well, luckily you weren't corner Antwaki that night because if Lowe had picked the Sheikh, he's the guy. He's not the guy. He's the guy. <laughs> the guy. Big red guy. <laughs> um, to get back to that story, what happened was this guy, we had to take him backstage and change him. Who? 
this guy that I'd picked in Hilton. Oh, in Hilton. He'd like bring it on stage. Aparte. No, no, different guy. This is the guy in Hilton. Right. The guy you picked. I picked. Yes. And he was having none of it. And we, I had to take him by the curtain. And then I'm like, Blake, you have to take off your clothes and put on this outfit we have picked for you. And he's like, no. Like, no, really, you have to do it. No, I'm not doing it. I paid money to come Enjoy watch the show. And now, I am now you're embarrassing me in front yeah. of everyone and I've got to change into these clothes. No. I was like, listen, and I'm muffling my mic. Please, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I made a mistake. Please, please, can you just put on these clothes? <laughs> or sell part of the clothes. Put them over your clothes that you're currently wearing and go out and so we can finish this show. <laughs> <laughs> and then he begrudgingly did it and really? it was embarrassing and horrible and then afterwards Lo was like I fucking told you and I was like fuck you no, fuck you and yeah and it just escalated and we nearly moored each other backstage in that Hilton thing and then we got in our car and we had to drive to Joburg and we didn't say a word to each other for 12 kilometers and, but you didn't think maybe we should just drive somewhere further <laughs> than Joburg just yeah. keep going just keep going to Pretoria Pretoria was one, also one of my worst Conan Twaki gigs that's a reference to last week's episode with renowned comedian and feather adornment wearer KG Mohan they put him they put him in feathers for the sheikh feathers KG in feathers feathers and we oh. think a grass skirt but we're not sure you are and made him perform he said they wanted him to be some kind of praise singer so he got his dad to send him some praise singing and then he said nah i can't learn this shit, so i'm just gonna make something up as, it's one <laughs> as i'm going and he's like halfway through and one of the models shoe broke and then apparently he just looked at the sheikh and went i didn't know what to do your highness <laughs> and they came the rest of the game what should we do now Because he spoke in English. No, he was saying bullshit in Setswana. And then the woman's shoe broke and she fell over and there was a whole commotion. And he went, I don't know what to do. <laughs> oh, my God. And then he drove. No, no, he was on a night. But he told us a story of another show where he. Um, Hello, wife. Where he. Uh, where he had such a bad gig in, in Durban, he decided to just drive straight to Pretoria. Just instead of flying back to Kenta. Just get in the car. Yeah, just drive to your mother in Pretoria. I hosted a gig in uh, at a uh, Retreat Yourself Festival, like one of those wellness wholeness festivals. That is perhaps, the even as bad my wife will back me up here, as self-care. Retreat yourself. Well, it's Retreat whole, yourself it's for a weekend festival. of self-care. Yeah. Yes. Uh, some of the self-care apparently included a stand-up comedy show with myself as the host and um, Scott the Sandman. Because laughter is the best alternative medicine. Uh-huh. Glenn Benjamin Pam and Ollie Booth. And Ollie Booth died so horrifically that he got into his car and just drove back and to Cape Town. And he's never done a joke in public since. He's never done comedy since that is that, night. Is that night. That is the night that broke him. Wow. Because he'd taken a break. Uh, uh, he'd been burned a couple of times and he was like, okay, I'm trying okay. it again. I'm back. I'm back. And he threw himself at it and he just... He threw himself over the cliff and forgetting there was no water. I mess I kept messaging him for the next couple of days because I was worried about him. Yeah. We once... That's how bad the worst gig ever can, can be. be. Lead to the end of careers. Um, 
we went, uh, 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 Pants on Fire, the show that Martin Evans and I did, um, where we were just on a couch talking shit and we'd bring comedians and yes. musicians on. We made that show quite difficult for a lot of comedians. There were some comedians who absolutely smashed it, but then there were some that it really struggled because the tone that we'd set was so conversational yeah. and so like irreverent that sometimes it was quite hard to make a shift from that to, to stand yes. up delivery. And you guys were always destroying Yes, and then you bring doing very, very yeah. little and being assholes, basically. And then if you came out and you weren't quite, you didn't, uh, I suppose, not uh, experienced enough, maybe, and just misstepped, it could be a very hard gig. And that happened to Glenn Bow one night. So he died so badly that we then, after that gig, we, in fact, as he came off stage, we were like, from now on, if anyone dies really, really badly, we're not calling it dying, we're calling it Glenn Bowing, because that's how bad it was. It was brutal. And then Glenn, years, would still message me out of the blue, going, I'm not, I'm better than that. I'm better than what you Please, saw. give me another chance. It's so hard when you have and when you have a death like that. It's like it shakes your entire your entire world. Do you have a, a death like that? I've got many of them. Many, many, What are, many, what are some of your favorite deaths? Because they become favorites uh, with enough time. I'm sure there's a mathematical equation we could calculate the time required for a death to become a something favorite. that you can actually enjoy. A favorite of this death. <laughs> I don't know if I'm there yet, Nick. I don't know if I can. Are there any deaths that you have made into bits? Um, there's the, the Konyatwaki story that I've done absolutely to death, where we, um, it wasn't so much a, a death as a, just the worst gig ever. Yeah, it was I a want death, a stand-up death, because there's something about a stand-up on your own death. <sighs> the yeah. loneliness of that. Like those corporate deaths. I remember doing a, an awards show where they, in fact, told me this is really, really, it's a tough gig. It always, the comedians always die. And I did the Cape Town version of it and went well, actually, surprisingly. And then they booked me for Joburg. And I was like, well, one thing I said is it's just quite late in the night to bring me on after everyone's been speaking. The people are tired. You've done all your awards. I'm only getting on stage at like 11. I was like, bring me on earlier. And that night in Joburg, they brought me on even later and added four extra awards. So I got onto stage at like half past 11 in this giant ballroom where there's a, like a ballroom dance floor between you mm. and the tables. And they're sitting there in their tuxedos and their sparkly gowns. Um, and they've had to watch just the most boring awards for hours on end. And then this asshole comes on stage and tries to be funny for 30 to 45 minutes and that it was you know like when you can feel that distance between you and the audience that dance floor is like it stretches a chasm it's a chasm it's a desert of pain and suffering and loneliness and and when you know you know you're gonna die you're like the first two or three have not landed in fact you know it right from the first gag it's like oh shit and then you know i've got 30 more minutes of this when nothing is going to land. It's excruciating. And you go home and you watch CNN for three and a half hours and you just question all your life choices up until that point. You are shaken to your core. 
It's horrific. So uh, this is really a public service announcement uh, for the aspirant comedians. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. There was another gig now that made that that memory made me think of. I can't. It's gone now. I don't know if I have uh, shared with you before, sort of before, was just after I started doing stand-up, I think. There was that weird phase where we'd do these corporate theatre things and characters and, and all that type of stuff that was quite popular back then. And I got booked to do possibly one of my first corporate gigs. The very first one was for a waste management plant in Port Elizabeth, which I think is perhaps... Um, it's up there with 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 the. I was doing it in character, and I was heckled throughout. What character? It was uh, it was Jabulani and Lovuam. Ashamed to say, I was oh doing, my god, uh, black scent. It wasn't blackface. It was. Black it wasn't scent. like you. And it was Not as bad as me. No. But it but was. You up were there. quite rightfully but, um, heckled throughout. I, I was being that. heckled by Afrikaans people. Well, that's how bad what you were doing was. It's a hub that, that they were like, they were... You were so offensive. That even apartheid was woker than me. Yeah, that's how bad you That's were. how bad I was. And shortly after I got booked to do this gig at Century City, there was, a, there was an Australian-themed bar called Sheila's Outback Bar. And they said, we would like to book you. And I said, that's great uh, for stand-up. And they said, no, just as an Australian. <laughs> And I had, I think I organized one of those hats and got someone to put corks oh in them. God. The whole number, I, I, I had to be Australian throughout. And I had some experience of doing that. So this is when you were trying to call, corner the market on cultural stereotypes. That was yeah, like. Yeah. In fact, last year before COVID, I was doing a show at the Baxter uh, and I, I picked on a guy somewhere near the front and he handed me, he said, here, have a look at this. And he handed a picture of, uh, through the rows to give it to me. And it was a picture of me, uh, like, but from 20 years ago. I was like, what is this? During the show? Yes. Apropos of nothing. Apropos of nothing other than I picked on him or something. And he went, take a look at this. And uh, he had a hard copy yes, of this photograph yes, that he yes, brought with him. Yes, from like 2003. Wow. And I was like, what is, is what is going on? It was a picture of me and another guy and I think him or something. And I was like, what is this? He says, no, that's, uh, I'm going to fuck up his accent. But he was Irish. Oh, um, uh, you remember you were in character and you didn't, uh, my, my, doc, my son's uh, 21st, uh, Norton, Norton. I was like, what? And through the mists of time, I, I remembered being booked to do a 21st uh and I was like, well, I've been stand-up. And they said, no, you'll be an Irishman. <laughs> and I had to play this and that, guy's... And this is the accent you did. Yes. At this yes, yes, yes. Hello, oh. I'm uh, Seamus. That was the guy's <laughs> name. He said, you will be Seamus. Uh, and you're playing my nephew from Cork. And, uh, and uh, my son says 21st. And uh, you are his long-lost cousin who he's never met from Ireland. And he did actually have an actual cousin by the name of Seamus who he'd never met in living in, in what Ireland. What the actual fuck is going on? <laughs> yeah, so I played this guy's cousin at the, for the whole 21st, like in character the whole night. That is bizarre. And I even made a speech. 
I even made a toast. <laughs> I've come all the I've come all the way from Cork, and it's delightful to be here. And blah blah blah. blah. Um, and luckily, nobody was actually from Ireland except for the dad. And he so just let it my slide. accent was fucking. And uh, until the end of the night, where I ran into, I was fucking, I was having a great time. I'm Seamus. There's young women. It's a twenty-first. Uh, and then somebody cornered me and was like, "Where exactly in Cork are you from?" Oh my god! And but now, what is the, go. what is the what so, was the point? Why was he doing? The point this? was he wanted to prank his son at his twenty-first. But the problem was it backfired because it was kind of emotional for his son that his cousin had blown all the way. Yeah, it's like what a disappointment. It's not like oh, yeah. you got me. It's like no, that's, I've made a friend. Yes. You've taken my friend away. And and he didn't tell him until the next day. <gasps> you are kidding me. What is wrong with this man? Well, this is the man who brought the photograph. To the show. <gasps> and then afterwards he said, can I have the photo back? What? So I get to keep the photo. <laughs> I was booked to do, as you're telling in the story, I remember, I was booked to do a, fi- a 50th or a 60th birthday party for um, a lawyer. Famous... Um, uh, 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 I think it was quite civil rights in South Africa during the struggle. Hodes, Ho, Peter Hodes, Hodes or something like that. Anyway, um, his daughter, who's going out with a friend of mine, decided I'm the entertainment he needs for him and his friends at his 60th birthday party. So they did it at that little bar restaurant downstairs from where the Space Theatre yes. was there. They got a little stage there. Sometimes they have music. And I was like, that's where it was. But now... They booked just a table where him and his 12 friends, all lawyers, all older white dudes who were like struggle adjacent and felt very good about themselves and are very smart, very intelligent, entitled people at the end of the day at their table. But then the rest of the restaurant is just normal punters of like people who just come out for dinner who have not hired a comedian who's doing a gig for a specific table of 60 year old lawyers and then i come up and i've now got to explain to the restaurant what i'm doing and i'm sorry if you weren't expecting comedy but i'm that's what i'm going to be doing for these guys Uh, and these guys at this table just heckle me throughout and when I say throughout, I lasted like seven minutes and then I just sat down at the table with them and started having a conversation. They like want to know what school I went to, yep. you know, and this whole like old white dude, boy school, like vibe. Everyone's, you know, putting their cock on the table and I'm trying to entertain them. It was hideous. And I, like, yeah, just as they start chatting at me, I start answering and I just slowly step off the stage and just sit down at the table and <laughs> talk to them for 45 uh, minutes like let them oh. awful oh the pain the pain the pain um, I don't know if you were ever booked by um, a guy to do dinner parties used to, this guy used to book comedians Alan Committee being one of them and the I go there and it's the same so, Irish dude with the photograph. Nope. There's eight people at a dinner table and he goes, okay, you're going to, after dessert, and you can go as blue as you like. 
When someone uses the word blue, you know you are fucked if you utter the word fuck. Yeah. And uh, you had to walk into the dining room. Uh, I don't know who was there. I walk in and uh, right in front of me is F.W. de Klerk. What? Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. What? And F.W. de Klerk heckled me like a what? few times through the... Yeah. I was like... Uh, you know, you walk in and you go, holy shit. Okay. Uh, so, um, I went crazy. back to the Renault de Stachrosses, Stax and Debossens. You fell asleep. And weirdly enough, F.W. de Klerk's cousin no, was F.W. de Klerk puts up his hand. He puts up his hand what? and he goes, yes, yes, yes. Because that story, I had framed it inside of 5050. Remember the, yes, the wildlife yeah, program? Yeah. And it was it was actually a gag that I'd sort of copied from Mark Banks, where he did an impression of uh, the the presenter of Felt Focus. Right. His name was Chris Tupina. Yeah. And I said, yeah, some. But then I added in the joke that I'd stolen from Mark. Yeah, God, there's a bit of a theme emerging here. <laughs> and uh, and then told, yeah, did you see that episode where Chris Tupina was like, yeah, today we're going to talk about the rhinoceros. This the greatest stairs to the bosses. He fell so steep, collected tracks. Once before, like the one full cake. He came, his bird. He came out to sing. Tweet, tweet. That's fucking snacks. It's fucking snacks. <laughs> and FW guy puts up his hand and goes, I uh, was taught by uh, Chris Tupina at school. <laughs> And that's all he has to offer on the subject. Yeah. He's just being helpful, really. He's being helpful. Yeah, he's supporting you. Yeah. Yeah, he... he uh, that was... Uh, that, so that was like this deeply traumatic thing. But you needed the money at the time. We were only... Yeah, you no, we weren't getting gigs and whatever. So he called me up a few months later. Now, can you come back as another dinner party? Go as blue as you like. Oh, my God. <laughs> so this time I'm like, okay, I'm... I get myself psychologically prepared. You're ready for anything. Ready for anything. You can throw me FW, Marika, <laughs> his Greek girlfriend, or a threesome of them, whatever. I'm ready for them. All like mid-60s. I get there, and the host is the only person in his 60s. Everyone else is 23 and doing coke in the bathroom. Oh, my God. And I didn't realize it was actually his 19-year-old mistress and all of her friends. Uh, are, are, and now it's like a long table and I must do stand up to people on cocaine and also it was like six minutes in us I was just like how are you <laughs> <laughs> yeah you just kind of segue no, into, just like, nah. I remember once doing a Korean Twaki gig with corporate where we came out and people were it's like they didn't turn the music down they were chatting no one was paying any attention and we got seven minutes in and I just turned to Korean and I was like hey guy I didn't think anyone cares if we give a flying fuck at the ruling donut. Let's fuck off. It's like, yes, let's fuck off. Okay. And we just walked out and no one noticed. No. For half an hour later, the like venue event organizer came up and was like, are you guys finished? Like, yes, it was great. Doing very well. Have I ever told you about the time I assaulted an audience member and... (laughs) No. It's one of my deepest shames. Oh, that's the kind of shame we want to hear about on this show. I thought it would be appropriate for this, for this show. Um, I got, I'd went to the Brighton Festival. I was doing a couple of different shows there. This one-man show, Dangled, got a bursary to go there. And we, I took that show, my stand-up show, and our kids' show. And Is this where you got all the material that's being squashed on the train and that stuff? 
No, the train stuff is Cape Town. Um, oh. I don't think I wrote any material from that time that I was... Oh, there's stuff that I did about uh, busking. Because the, f- the first gig I got when I was... For that festival, I was like... I, I said to the organisers, I'm, I'm like, I want to promote the stand-up stuff and I want to be on lineups and, you know, whatever. And like, watch what are ways you're promoting. And one of the ways was like just busking out on the street and mm. put a PA and you go... So I arrived in Brighton, went to the Airbnb, put all my stuff and went immediately through the streets of Brighton and found... This PA on the side of the road, we're literally just walking past you and you're trying to do stand-up comedy to pedestrians as they walk past. And the only audience I could get were these two ginger children who just stared at me <laughs> the whole time and didn't laugh at all. It, it was horrible. So then... So you assaulted one of the children? No. <laughs> like I wish. <laughs> I should have. Um, and were gingers after I did a lineup show where I was, I was struggling to get numbers... Uh, for my stand-up show, because no one knows who I am, you know. And one of the the there was rain the one night in the the shipping container, which is the stage that you're in, like leaks, and I had to cancel it. So that was like a bit of more momentum gone. So I'm trying to jump on lineups, and I'm doing well on the lineups. It's going well. Then I get one where it's at like half past one in the morning. It's late. It's right at the end, and I'll. On this, I'm like last on the lineup for the show, but I'm like, I've got to do it. But I'm tired, I'm fatigued, it's been pretty hard. Um, and there's this guy in the audience who is super drunk and a, just a complete asshole, just like the worst human being, and heckling everyone and, and sabotaging every single person's mm. act, and getting up there and just totally like sabotaging it. And as, it's, as the night's going, it's getting later and later. It's like now nearly 2 o'clock, 2.30 by the time I'm going on stage. I've watched every act die and be sabotaged by this asshole. I've now started drinking as well and tired. And my, my, my natural impulse as a comedian is to go quite... I'm like a very big energy and I go hard. And also because I think because I've played so many gigs in South Africa where it's really quite... Uh, adversarial between you and, and mm. the audience it's it's um combat it's combat uh and having played gigs like at the brass this, this is where the 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 problem came at one night at the bra- brass bell there was this drunk dude who was way out of line and i got onto this stage and i said if you onto his table i was like if you don't stop now i'm gonna smack you i'm gonna smash I'm, this bottle over you i'm gonna smack you and he didn't stop and i slapped him in the face and eventually got him kicked out and and it was brass bell it was wild it was it was it was okay but now i'm finding myself in the situation in brighton at this festival in the uk where this feeling of like i've got to go to war now starts building with this guy and i'm like i've only got one shot at this lineup show before my last stand-up show i need numbers in that i need bums on seats i'm not letting this guy destroy my 10 minutes up here and i came at him hard and put down and put down and put him in his place but he's too drunk yeah he's too drunk i've got the audience on my side they hate him we're he's too drunk he just keeps going and he starts singing loudly over me trying to do gags about the difference between dogs and cats you know he's just like and i to go up to him and i said i'm gonna i'm gonna smack you and he didn't stop and then i slapped him and as i slapped him it all just came, oh. what I had done. Yes. Where I was and what I had done. Yes. And how out of line I actually was. I was just like, you've just assaulted 
an audience member. Yes. You're not at the fucking brass bell, bro. This is not. And even if you're at the brass bell, you can't slap an audience member. It doesn't matter how drunk they are. Oh, my God. So you walked out, got in your car and drove to Pretoria. <laughs> <laughs> I went and hid behind backstage and I was just like shaking. And the stage manager came and he was like, okay. He was like, that was crazy. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, he said, the, the whoa, stage whoa, whoa, managers whoa. there are. So you, you hit the guy. How did you then segue into leaving? Did you just, it was, what did you do? The guy stopped. Next. And the, the, you could, you, the, the, the energy in the room shifted. just changed. Yeah. It shifted. It yeah. was like, and there was this, almost this intake of breath. And this guy was like, did you see that? Did you, did you see what he just did to me? And it was like, and then the, someone came in and threw him out, and it was the end of the show. And, and hey, I walked, thank you very much. Ah. I've been Rob and Buren. And I walked off and backstage, and I'm like, oh my god, what have I done? And then he he was still milling about. He was like, I'm calling the police. I'm like, I'm about to be arrested, arrested, thrown out of this country. Then they placate him. The stage managers that side placate him. They come and tell me he's still here. Go out and apologize to him. And I'm like, oh God, and I'm like, blood is drained from my face. And I go out and I'm kind of so, he's like, there he is, there he is. And I'm so sorry, I really, was, I, you know, it's been stressful and that it's just a lot. I really apologize. I was completely out of line. And he's like, yeah. Yes, you were. Yeah. yeah. And, and like, maybe just be funnier next time. And I was like, oh. yeah. And then you actually punched and him. And then I punched him and yep. I killed him. And, and stabbed No, I just said, you're absolutely right. I should be funnier and there's no excuse. And, and then I just like, I walked home that night to my Airbnb, like moaning, like a mm-hmm. wounded animal. Mm-hmm. Like I was making these noises that I didn't even know yes. where, they, where they were coming from. Just walking down the street going, oh, yep. oh, you know, like just thinking about what I had done. It was so bad. It was a huge moment for me. I'm like, going, okay, you can't do that. That's not, and it doesn't have to be war. It doesn't actually have to be war. If, it's, if, you're, if you step out onto a, a stage that's like, oh, this is a battlefield and people have to die to, to leave it, just let it go. I'm so pleased that you, that you didn't let it go and <laughs> that, you, that you actually lost control of that situation. Because we wouldn't be here today. Um, there would be no show. There would be no story. There would be no tell. story. And um, I, I, I really want to honor you for, for that, Rob. It's a great pleasure. For crossing that line. Um, for performing in legal acts, really, uh, at a public gathering in the United Kingdom. For without that, the, the ratings on the show would plummet. Is that possible? No. There are no ratings. There are no ratings. No. And if they are, and, they and nobody, probably can't plummet further. There's no point, as we discussed last week, trying to get our audience to give us five-star ratings because they secretly despise us. Yes, this is an actual conversation we had. Yes. Yeah. We have our audience is consists of people who not even secretly despise us. They begrudgingly, they are begrudging fans. Yes. Begrudging but, fans. Yeah, but they, there, there they should were, be an alternative to OnlyFans called begrudging, begrudging fans. fans. And yeah. we will start an and app. we will make money on that. We will f- coin it. Yep. We will we will take all of your judgments and then take them off and then put them on again for money. 
I don't know how that works. I don't know how that works. But there's something potentially sexual about it. I hope so. Yeah, me too. This has been good. Uh, It's going to get better. Thank you, Rob for sharing painful stories of the land of stand-up comedy to inspire the younger generation (laughs) who (laughs) thankfully can't do stand-up comedy right now. You're lucky. You were lucky, actually. That's what we should be talking about. It's the olden days where you could punch someone in the face at a gig, an actual show. The good old days. I remember a Korean Taiki show where we played in Pretoria and uh, it was on our first tour up north and we didn't have an audience up there. And it played at this one little tiny little restaurant in in Hatfield. And the audience was my girlfriend at the time and her parents, they lived in Krugersdorp, they were extremely Afrikaans. And that was the audience, those three people. And <laughs> my, the mom of my girlfriend, bless her, she was like, this cannot. You had a conversation before you went on, which was, should we do the show? We didn't, I don't think we, we didn't. did. We were just like, at that stage we were like, doesn't matter. We just do it. Everything, we just get up and we do it. Oh, we were like, that's grab it. She was like, oh, we can't do this though. And she went, took it upon herself to go to this venues surrounding that venue and like rally up an audience. And all she could manage was two lesbians from the lesbian bar next door, who then were forcibly kind of brought into our venue to watch Conan Twaki. And they lasted about 15 minutes before they left. And then it was, the audience was just again, my girlfriend and her parents. <coughs> and that was a good gig. You know, I, those gigs with like hardly any people are often such like sweet memories, bittersweet memories. Yeah, you were talking about um, that dinner party thing. Like I've had really nice shows where it's nine people yeah. in a lounge, like that yeah. secret soiree kind of, that kind of lounge show thing. That can be really, really beautiful actually. We did, um, I remember this in Durban, me, Trevor Noah, Eugene Causa, and potentially one other person, but I think it was just the three of us. And we were walking around uh, that casino and Trevor Noah was being mobbed, not because he was being recognized as Trevor Noah, the stand-up comedian, but he was being recognized as the dancer from Strictly Come Dancing. <laughs> so I don't know, this is like, I don't know, 2006. And um, they'd put on 800 chairs and there were nine people. Um, if that, if that, yes. I think there were six people and like three or four of us. And the guy's like, no, we've got it, we've got it. There's, people will come, they will come. We'll just start. Just keep going, they'll Nobody come. Can. If you build it, they will come. And then there, it was even like you could see the food court. So there were, like, people could see what was happening. And they were like, and then my German cousins said, Shane, no, we'll come, we'll come watch. <laughs> uh, but they had decided to eat first. And so they arrived while the second guy was on. I was on third. And then Trevor was headlining. So they decided, no, oh, fuck, we don't want to listen to the, the first guys. We'll come just before Nick. So literally, as I'm being introduced, they're like 12 of them arrive and like fill up the front row. And we're like, oh, this is, this is better. And I uh, finished my like 15 minutes or whatever. And then the MC comes back. Please welcome your headliner for the night, Trevor Noah. And they all leave. <gasps> no. They all got up and left. It's back to like four people. <laughs> oh my god, that's awful. 
So when I look at, uh, sometimes I look at Trevor Noah standing in front of his 400 million rand um, house. I, I like to remember that story. My first stand-up gig ever was a gig that Trevor hosted at the Blues Room in Santon. And I died so badly. I had no kind of frame of reference for, for stand-up at that point. I'd, I'd been doing Kore Antwaki for years and theatre, physical theatre, physical comedy theatre. And so I wrote like a, a seven-minute history of the world in in physical comedy that I decided would work at the blues room at the blues room in Santon. Yes, I died. It was so bad to the point where I didn't do stand up for another four years after that. In fact, the only laugh I got was when someone heckled me and I just looked at him and I was like, wow, you're so fat. (laughs) (laughs) That was the only laugh I got was just uh, in fear, observing something about the man who had just shouted at me. And then going back to my. So I arrive at the gig with the hat and the corks um, and the Australian, the bad Australian accent. Mm-hmm. And it's at a bar. And uh, I say to the people, what would, what am I going to be doing other than talking in an Australian accent all afternoon? And they said, um, no, we'd like you to commentate on um, two things, the, the rat races, and then we're going to do mud wrestling. Um, but in Australian. And I was like, how does that work? And they took me to behind the bar and there were these like tunnels, perspex tunnels with rats, actual rat, like two rats, and uh, two separate tunnels that went tick, 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 whatever. And I don't know how, what they used, cheese or something to make these rats race, run. And then I had to commentate in an Australian accent. That was the first thing. Fine, no problem. Then there were these two strippers from Teasers or Mavericks, I forget which. And they said, this is uh, uh, Savannah and that's Arizona. And they will be doing the mud wrestling if you can commentate on that as well in Australian. <laughs> <laughs> and then it, the gig was for Fruit and Veg City, right? What? Fruit and Veg City now is called Food Lovers Market. It's a big chain. Fruit and Veg City but decided and veg for City, an end of year function. What they needed was a Australian commentator yeah. for anything that may have been happening anything, on the day. Anything on the day. And that anything consists of, you know what I think is a good idea? A rat race. An actual rat race. Actual rat race. And a mud wrestling we need strippers. We need two strippers. Two, but they can't yeah. strip. That's too much. Yes. So let's get them to wrestle with mud. No. We, the, they, so take me out. Like, there's the mud wrestling pit. And, uh, and everyone will come what out. What is this venue? This is a, a bar uh, like at Century City. Did it have the rat race tubes and the mud pit already installed? I think the mud pit might have been brought in. Okay. But the rat race tubes were there installed a, behind the bar. That was something that the, Permanent the event organizer, when scouting things, saw that and was like, that's perfect. We need that for yeah. our event. For our Fruit and Veg City event. Yeah. But Fruit and Veg City at the time only had two stores and uh, one was Access Park. The other was Rowland Street. They are now like a multi, almost multinational yeah. company. But uh, there were 60 people or so, head office. And... Um, Fine, rat races, great. Yeah, fantastic. And we go outside and they say, okay, this is how the mud wrestling is going to work. We're going to auction them off to the highest bidder and then that person will get into the ring with the mud wrestling. You are kidding me. And we want you to do that auction in Australia. 
<laughs> so, okay, great. Yeah. 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 Good on you. Uh, and we got Savannah in the left and Arizona on the right. We're looking for an opening bit of, can I get 50 rand? 50 rand, 50 rand, 75. Can we get 75? And nobody's bidding apart from this one guy who turns out to be the CEO who's had too much to drink. And he goes, yeah, 50, I'll go 50 rand, 50 rand, for 75. He goes, I'll go 75. I'm looking for 100, I got 75 from the same guy. I bid 50, can we get 100? Yes, I'll get 100. Same guy. He eventually outbids himself three times. And I'm like, okay, 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 fine. You can takes off his clothes right there. What? In front of the whole office. Takes off his pants and his shirt. And he's wearing these red Y fronts, <laughs> these red undies. Okay. Never forget, they're, they're like burnt into my brain. With his fritten veg. With his two veg, his meat and two veg, and he gets into the ring with Savannah, <laughs> Arizona, or whatever, whatever it was, and they start wrestling in this like mud, but it was like, it was like a sort of off-brown like coffee. This play. is truly the golden age of corporates. The golden age, and they start wrestling. And at one point, I remember so clearly because I was standing right by the stage. And um. This is and Brian. Is and Brian is there? And the one I don't know if it was accidental or intentional. She grabbed like she grabbed him, and somehow pulled his his right front just like a little bit off. So his one testicle went. Oh was, gosh! Just like to the whole office. Hi. <laughs> and people recoiled. People like physically, the whole they were standing. They were all standing around, and they they basically the women especially. Everyone started, started backing off. Backing off. And. Uh, <laughs> At which point I think I called the whole, I just called it off. It was like, okay, okay, okay. You win, whatever you win. <laughs> I think you won. I think that's it. And then I got in my car and drove to Pretoria. <laughs> for that, and never got booked like with those guys. Okay, I'd seen too much, right? And then there's, a, I think there must be a period at which people forget. And this is what happens, I think, with having kids as well. Yes. Like you're programmed to forget what it's like so you have another one. Yeah. And I get this call 14 years later. Oh, my God. Uh, fruit and veg are now called Food Lovers Market. And they're having their conference. We want you to be the MC, the opening of the conference. And it's at this big uh, hotel uh, ballroom. And there's 600 people now in their office. So this is, they've gone like big and they want to go global. They want to go multinational. So you have to do it in an Australia. They've flown in. Uh, they've flown in the guru of uh, multinationals. Uh, who was, little did we know, a few months away from uh, being convicted for fraud. And his name was Marcus Eusta, and his company was called Steinoff. And he did the opening presentation. How oh, amazing. And what did it And the guest of honor sitting next to who Brian Coppin, who's still the, 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 um, the CEO. We'll cut Coppin out of that. We'll just call him Brian Coppin. And he was sitting next to guest of honor opening a walk on stage. And I, I, can't, I just can't not say it's so time. great to be back here at Fruit and Veg, so whatever you call yourselves now. To me, you'll always be Fruit and Veg. And who will ever forget the 2004 office party at Sheila's Outback Bar, where I uh, had to auction off two strippers from Mavericks uh, for, for CEO to mud wrestle with. And he did all of that in Australian. Brian, do you still own those red undies? Why? What compelled you <laughs> to say I had that? To. I had to. It felt like artistically is... I couldn't compromise my integrity, Rob, by not mentioning the red undies. Your impulse to 
sabotage and, yourself. And funnily enough, on on this past Sunday, I was telling the story to my uh, brother-in-law who lives around the corner from Red Undies' brother. Right. And I know because I'd run, run across him there. And as I drove out of their house, the man with the Red Undies' brother drove across my path like a black cat. And I thought, I have to tell you the story today. It's a sign. So you transferred that curse onto me by telling me that story. No, but I think my daughter Sophie, there's something going on so that it's trans been transferred to her because when she went to play with her Jack, her friend Jack next door, yeah. uh, last week, yeah. she came back wearing his red undies. Jack's? Yep. Which he had worn for two days prior and she hasn't changed out of for the last three days. I need to get into my car and drive to Pretoria right now. So there we go. That was my talk with Rob from Fear. It was great to see him. I hadn't seen him almost for the whole pandemic at that point. Hopefully we'll see each other before the end of the pandemic in, I don't know, 2030. Guys, please like and subscribe um, this podcast in whatever way you can. Even if you just like it in your own mind. That's good for me. It's enough for me. Next week, I've got younger comedian Yasin Barnes, who is just a great human being. He's a lovely man. He's humble. He has a voluptuous beard. And his jokes, although he tells a lot of dad jokes, he's not a dad himself, but his dad jokes have been recognized. He's won Best Newcomer of the Year at the Comics Choice Awards in 1988. I'm joking. He's great. You're going to like him. I think you're going to like this episode next week. It's going to be fun. And I hope to see you back. Be safe. Stay safe. And lock the safe. Even if you don't have a safe or even if you have nothing left in it. Which is probably the case. Goodbye. I love you all. Really, truly I do.